On today's podcast, I'll be asking if Boris Johnson's government has finished before it's even started as MPs vote to take control of parliamentary business. Is the nightmare of HS2 finally over? After announcements yesterday of further construction delays, it might be worth cancelling the whole thing. And finally, I'll be talking to activist Jenny Luffran about the crisis with special educational needs and disabilities in our schools. First up, last night MPs voted to take control of the parliamentary agenda for today, which means that they may be able to block no deal. I'm joined by a friend of the podcast, Sam, here uh, to discuss this issue further. Yeah, so it was a very eventful night in the comments yesterday um, with MPs taking control of today's agenda in the Commons. That means they've got a chance to try and pass the Hillary Benn EU withdrawal bill, which effectively gives them more time to stop no deal um, and calls for an extension of Article 50. It was a shocking night for Boris Johnson, really. Um, it's the first time a Prime Minister, it, this, I think it's since the 1900s, has mm. lost their first ever vote in the Commons. Um, he's also now doesn't have a parliamentary majority um, after sacking... MP is in what is really quite a horrifically maddening fashion. Uh, to lose Ken Clark, Philip Hammond, Nicholas mm. Soames, Rory Stewart, and more, madness. Absolute madness. Exactly. I mean, 21 MPs have lost the Tory whip uh, as of today. Nicholas Soames, <laughs> grandson of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill being a man that Boris Johnson idolises. It just... It's beggar's belief at this point. It's amazing. And I've seen a lot of people on Twitter talking about, like, um, oh, this is the end of the Conservative Party, Conservative Party's imploding. But I think I see things a bit differently, to be honest, because I think that, you know, the Tories have been through stuff like this before. It's not the first time. I mean... I agree, and I would urge caution in the whole end of the Conservative Party thing, but it is the end of the modern Conservative Party, yes. the David Cameron Reformation, when he won Lucifer in 2005, managed to get them to the biggest party in 2010, and then that majority mm. in 2015. I don't know how they can recover another general election, um, because with Ruth Davidson gone, I mean, there was a YouGov poll yesterday that said they'll get two seats in mm. Scotland. They are no longer going to be able to rely on that boost from the SNP. They're going to lose votes to the Lib Dems because of how hard Brexit they've become. And the modern Conservative Party under Cameron, it was sort of, it wasn't centrist conservatism because there was still a lot of right-wing policies, but it was more centrist than it had ever been, and it was more modern than it had ever been. And Cameron worked very hard to get to that stage, and right now, Boris, through the work of Dominic Cummings, who, for a supposed mastermind, has really messed this up, um, it's certainly not going to be the Conservative Party that we saw uh, a couple of years ago. Well... Four years ago now, because I suppose a lot's happened in a couple of years. I mean, this talk of this whole general election thing being a bit of a trap from Boris. Um, he obviously tabled a motion under the fixed term parliament that yesterday after losing the vote. And to be honest, I kind of do understand why people are saying it's a trap. There's been rumours of him, you know, trying to get no deal through whilst um, an election's ongoing. There's been talk of really him knowing that this is a way for him to get quite a good mandate. I mean, what do you think about that? Because I am of the position where I think people don't trust Jeremy Corbyn. I don't personally trust Jeremy Corbyn. I think he's incompetent. I think that's Uh, the view of a lot of people in this country. But the issue is, 
MPs don't trust Boris Johnson. And so you've got a, re- a really odd situation where Boris Johnson publicly says, I will not have a general election, it's a bad thing in the country. Mm. Personally, he needs one right now because he wants to reunite the Leave vote while the Remain vote is still split and take a majority. Whether that'll happen is debatable. But then you've also got the flip side, Jeremy Corbyn demanding a general election. He's been demanding a general election when it's been tactically stupid, when it really isn't necessary. And now all of a sudden, he has this opportunity for a general election, but does he risk it for no deal? And from Keir Starmer's comments on the Today programme this morning, I believe he won't do so. So, and actually, more to the point, would a general election actually solve anything? I don't know, because you are going to have a further public vote to break the deadlock. A referendum would be the simplest one, because it either proves that leave is definitely will of the people, which is a very generic term, I shouldn't use it because I hate it when people no. do, because um, it changes, But it will, or it will say, look, people have decided they don't like it, let's remain. The issue is that whatever that hypothetical referendum result would be, it would still probably need an election to enforce it because of the current state of parliament. However, an election to rid of a hung parliament it will only bring a hung parliament. I don't see how that helps. Yeah, I mean, the alternative is potentially a vote of no confidence, uh, seeing some sort of national government formed with the likes of Labour, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, uh, forming a sort of coalition government. And, I mean, I like the Liberal Democrats, I like the SNP, I'm not a fan of Labour, but I do not think that that's a great scenario, because... When you've got all of these different parties who, yes, broadly speaking, are on the left of a centre in politics, they are not going to agree on everything. I can't see Labour, for example, saying that they're going to support a second independence referendum. Uh, Yeah, I think that's... um, There is one now worth making a point that because of the whip removal yesterday from the 21 Tory rebels, that Conservative plus Lib... Conservative now has less MPs than Labour, the SNP and the Lib Dems combined. However, a government of national unity is not going to happen because uh, the other parties outside of Labour will not trust Corbyn to lead it. The Labour front bench will not trust anyone else to lead it. So while I don't think it would work anyway, um, even if it were to happen, you would end up in that situation, which is what I think the government, and I don't mean the government as a whole, I mean Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, what they want is for the Labour leader and the other parties to be divided, but also be saying, hey, let's not go back to the people just yet, we need to sort this out. Because that enables Cummings to do his whole narrative of Boris versus Parliament. Boris is on the side of the people. Now, whether he is, he's debatable, and depending on if you're a Leaver or a Remainer, you'll pick your side on that. However, the inability of opposition parties to achieve something may hurt that narrative because if they were all to get together from a government national unity, stop no deal and extend Article 50 for a year, that works really well for Boris. It doesn't in his aim of leaving, but actually the political game of him would be far greater. Um, will it happen? I don't think so. I think the path from here, the bill today will be passed and then it simply depends. We will have an election if there can be a guarantee that the election date won't be changed by Boris. Is there a way to guarantee that? I don't have a parliamentary expertise and legislation knowledge to know that, and I don't think many do. That's fair enough. I mean, let's just go back to Dominic Cummings. There was a story that came out fairly recently about Dominic Cummings sacking one of Sajid Javid's chief advisers, and um, he essentially said in no uncertain terms to the remaining advisers within Downing Street, you know, it's my way or the highway. If you don't like it, 
that's not my problem, you can leave. I find it very, really interesting that the reason why people voted for Brexit, the reason why people voted leave, was because they wanted to get rid of these unelected bureaucrats, they wanted to take back control and put control back in the hands of our sovereign parliament. But then they're backing people like Dominic Cummings, who is an unelected bureaucrat, is arguably more powerful than any unelected bureaucrat we've ever seen before. I mean, let's let's get your thoughts on that. Um, I agree with what you're saying, and it's one of them points that the Remain side will make with glee and the Leave side will totally ignore. Um, and it is true that Dominic Cummings has a lot of power. Uh, the sacking of uh, the former advisor to Hammond, then Javid, was a very, very odd event. Philip Hammond on the Today programme yesterday morning said, she's a passionate leaver. And that's also, it brings me up to an interesting point actually, Philip Hammond was the second Tory after Michael Gove to say he'd back leaving a referendum. Uh, he he is Eurosceptic, although he voted for Remain, he is a Eurosceptic, and that's the state of the Tory party at the minute. But Dominic Cummings demands absolute purity. Um, yes, he's unelected, yes, he's a bureaucrat. However, British politics has always been that way. It's just one of the uh, difficulties in you know, rebuilding our politics is that there is always going to be unelected bureaucrats, but if you can peddle that on a referendum, it calls into question how we realign ourselves following that. And it's one of them points that I, is to I totally agree with, but I don't think it helps the debate, because it's remaining sneering in the face of believe you're going, ha ha, you asked for sovereignty, now you're trying to shut down Parliament. And it's it, it doesn't help the debate. While true, it's not very beneficial to either side. I mean, it's, it's no secret that there's this sort of arrogance that comes from a lot of Remainers, um, kind of saying, oh, well, we don't like you, you're racist, you're, you don't know what you're talking about, things like that. And let's face it, that's the reason why a lot of people voted leave oh, in the yeah. first place, because it was that rebellion vote. Yeah, and I think I think the idea that all Remainers are sneering at believers going, you're racist, is overstated, but sadly it is true. And mm. that's one of the ways that Remain can't win a second referendum, is if they go, you'll vote leave, now you're all going to change your minds because we're right. Now, they may be right, but that's mm. not how you say it to win a referendum. And that is why... Dominic Cummings is so, well, who, I thought he was a genius um, in terms of political manoeuvring. If it's, it doesn't seem like that's going to work out for him at the moment. That could all change politics and mm. being very fast, of course. But there is definite problems on both sides. Leavers just saying to me, we voted Leave, get over it. And Remain is saying, yeah, well, you're wrong. It doesn't work. There has mm. to be some sort of movement and has to be some sort of compromise. At the time of a referendum, I was pro-leave, I'm now pro-remain, but if you'd said to me um, for a couple of weeks after referendum, look, we'll compromise, we'll leave you, but we'll stay in some sort of alignment with customs union yeah. and single market, I'd have said fine. And actually, most leavers would have, most remainers would have. Now we're at a polarised situation where leavers say no deal, despite it not yeah. being what was offered at the time, and remainers say totally remain, despite that not being what the referendum mandate is for. And that's the sort of division that's going to be so hard to heal, and that's what I fear most. It's not the consequences of the actual leaving EU economically, although I don't think it'll be good. It's not that um, we're now engaged in a very populist debate. It is that sort of division that I don't see how we heal. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, it's, a lot of it's to do with time, I think, since the uh, referendum. Because when you go back to the referendum, there was no one on the Leave side saying, 
we're not going to get a deal, there's no way. Because people say, no, well, the courts, the EU want to trade with us, we're massive trade partners. But because it's taken so long, I think people have become so frustrated at the fact that there has essentially been no progress with the EU. People are just gunning for a no deal. I mean, we're, we're recording in Grimsby today, a major, major leave seat. And everyone that you speak to, they just want no deal now. They just want to get out. Exactly. I think that's the main issue is that... Well, first point is that you referendums don't work because you don't have the accountability of people who promise it. David Cameron <laughs> walks away um, and Boris Johnson, it's taken three years. He was the one who... It didn't win the campaign, but he was one of the main swinging cause candidates. It was a thing. It's yeah. taken so long for him to be able to be in an office where he can take account for it. The other issue is that... Um, do you know what? I completely forgot what the actual question was. Um, the other issue is that... Well, it's, it's, the point is that people want no deal now. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, people want yeah. no deal. And so that sort of um, divide means there is no way of healing. You are going to upset half the country, whatever you do. And how do you get out of that situation? I really don't know. I mean, is no deal in a leave scenario, is that the best for the country? Um... Because people aren't going to accept a deal now. I think I think that's pretty clear. I think it is, unless you have some very good political move. And to be honest, the backstop has been victimised to such extent. It's not actually that bad of policy. It makes sense. It preserves the soft border, well, the lack of border, even in Northern Ireland, and gets us out of the main institutions of the EU. And it protects us against a rise of the IRA, which which we're already seeing again. Exactly. Um, you know, our Irish uh, Republican sympathies are yeah. on the rise again. Um, but that's one of them things that we had to work out how to solve is that the mandate is shifting now so a lot of the arguments I see from Remainers are yeah but people didn't vote for no deal well that's very true but they would vote for no deal now and that's not even just exactly. leaders that's people who are so fed up that it's still going on and that's one of the main things that I think Jeremy Corbyn sort of knows is that let's say no deal happens then there's an election I don't think he'd be too devastated by that because his main focus is getting into number 10 and ending austerity mm. and renationalising everything and ending the legacy factor, completely changing the country on an economic and social level. If no deal happens, meh, so what for him? And that's one of the main things. People just want Brexit over. And they, there is no longer any sensibility in the argument. Melanie Arn, who's our local MP, mm. she voted Remain. Um, I think probably still privately voted Remain is the best option. Her constituents very leave. Now she's opposed to a no deal. She probably will back the May deal if it's brought back, having not done first, yeah, because she knows we just need to get out. However, her she will be. I think she'll probably lose her seat in the next election because she has not taken us out. And while she understands that no deal isn't the way to do that, there is no sense to that argument. It is just get us out yeah. or stay us in. There's no difference. And I mean, I think. Thinking from Jeremy Corbyn's perspective right now, I'd be thinking to an extent, no deal is probably quite positive in a way because we all know that no deal is going to be disastrous. I don't think that that is really uh, up for debate at this point. It is not up for debate, but it's one of the things when people say it, it only annoys leaders. Yeah, of course, of course, <laughs> that's, that's the issue. Yeah. yeah, but in the event of a disastrous no deal, people are going to be pointing the finger at the Conservative Party. Because the Conservative Party, throughout this, they've been in government the entire time, they have been responsible, and they will be responsible in the event of no deal. 
So surely it benefits Labour or any of the other opposition parties, the Liberal Democrats obviously on the right at the moment, to be thinking, well, let's let no deal happen because then what everyone's going to be pointing the finger at the Conservative parties and will walk into government. Um, I think that's... It's a good point, but I think it falls down on two in two ways. Firstly, if Jeremy Corbyn allows no deal to happen, he's got to make sure he's looking like he's trying to stop it. Now, he's doing a good job of that at the moment, yeah. but Labour has slipped a lot in the polls. They're starting to recover, but they've slipped a lot in the sense that... I think they may be 10 percentage points behind the last time I saw. Yes, which is still five points up from where they were after the European elections. The Labour yeah. Dems are starting to slip away again as an election fear comes near first past the post. However, the point remains that will a really, really annoyed Remainer vote for Labour in the event of no deal because will they still attach some blame to Corbyn? I think they probably will. Yeah. And the other point is, if the election is held on the 1st of November, then all the Leavers come out and vote for Boris. They've got what they wanted, they'll reward him. Now, no deal might be a disaster a month after that, but the election on the 1st of November, for instance, by then people aren't aware of how bad it could well go. And so actually, yes, Corbyn will still win some votes, but really win enough to challenge Boris, the hero of the Leavers, before it's actually had a negative effect that Corbyn could win back some votes. And when it does have a negative, will he lose them because he hasn't tried hard enough to stop it? Yeah, I mean, let's just talk about the Lib Dems for a minute. We saw, before uh, the events of last night, we saw Dr Philip Lee cross the floor, actually in the middle of Boris Johnson uh, making a speech. Are the Lib Dems on the rise? Is this a new dawn for them? They've, they've not had a government since uh, David Lloyd George, all the way back during the First World Interestingly, War. Interestingly, he was the last person to be an independent wildfather of the House. Oh. Not an independent, not Tory or Labour even. So since he stepped down in, I believe it was 45, uh, the father of the House has always been Labour or Tory, until today, can clock independent. Random oh, fact for me. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> but are, are the Lib Dems on the rise, though? Um, yes and no. Uh, they are have the momentum, certainly. The win in the Brecon uh, by-election, which brought Jane Doss to Parliament, she was sworn in yesterday. Busy first day at the office of her. Defections, Chuck Ramuna, Sarah Wollaston, Philip Lee. Um, I believe they're on to 16 MPs now. Yeah, uh, 15, 16 15, MPs. 16, yeah. So they're doing decently. However, how do they keep it going? Because yes, they're going to keep winning Remain votes, but Corbyn is realising that and he is starting to push towards Remain. So that splits the Remain vote. The other issue for them is that they are people still don't forgive them for the coalition. Now I do. I'm an understanding person. I realise that if they had done this coalition, there <laughs> there would have been another election a year later, and the Tories would have a majority because they had the money to campaign again, um, and people would have been annoyed at the Lib Dems and Labour. So I understand well, that decision. It's a very but a different people, Liberal Democrats now, I think, isn't it? It's yes and no. Joe Swinson, a businessman from the coalition, is now leading the party. Um, true, true, but I think that the attitudes are different, even from, say, Tim Farron's uh, yeah, Liberal Democrats. Um, and they are a changing party, and they are different. But will people forgive them at the ballot box? We simply don't know. What matters more to people? Is it they are the, only, they are the true party of Remain? Well, yeah, they are, but Corbyn's coming back. Would you rather vote Lib Dem or Labour in a first-past-the-post election? Would you yeah. rather vote for the bigger party? And then those who are thinking, yeah, OK, well, Lib Dems are the true Remainers, I'll vote for them. Hang on a minute, says your Labour activist, look at the coalition. We're in this mess because of austerity. And that's one of the main issues they're having trying to uh, convince people. I've also just had a news alert 
saying a Scottish court has ruled that Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament is lawful. Now, that is unsurprising in my eyes. Um, the the proroguing of Parliament is within law. It's not like... It is within law. The motive was called into question, um, and I think the motive is wrong, but... The I motive think, is certainly... Oh, yeah, certainly is wrong, but, but um, I think it was going to be very difficult to overturn that. That is quite... It's a big decision there, but it would have taken a lot to have effectively overruled the Queen, which you can't technically do, but you sort of can based on the advice she's got. Mm. Uh, so that's um, an interlude that is expected, but still, I suppose, disappointing for those on the Remain side and the stop the coup sides. And of course, the prorogation of Parliament. I mean, people talk about it as a suspension of Parliament, the suspension of democracy, but when you actually look at the dates, it's practically... Only slightly longer than it's the parliamentary recess days. anyway. However, it takes up the conference season. Now, there was talk of MPs yeah. voting to sit through that. And so, effectively, the government has got an excuse saying, oh, look, it's only four days. Well, actually, it probably could have been a whole lot more if because MPs were likely to vote down a uh, conference recess and sit through that. Um, and it's still... It, I think the stop the coup process aren't doing much good because it's making it seem a whole lot worse than it is, but it is, we are leaning towards the sort of area where you go, hang on a minute, this isn't right, you're suspending Parliament to get what you want. I think I wouldn't, I'd almost be less concerned if you'd just been honest about it and said, look, I'm suspending Parliament because they're rejecting the will of the people, the nonsense Brexiteer rhetoric. However, the fact he's lying about it, that sort of concerns me a bit more, really. I'd rather he was just honest and gave it the usual leave nonsense. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I'm just going to finish up with quite a uh, broad question. Is no deal off the table now? I mean, presuming that MPs vote to take no deal off the table yeah. today, uh, is, is that the last we see of it? Is it dead and buried? Certainly not. Um, I, I would put a decent amount of money on no deal being blocked by MPs tonight, but that doesn't end it whatsoever. No, I mean, it's the legal default at the end of the day, isn't it? It is the legal default, and can a law in Parliament overturn that? I'm not too sure. I don't really have constitutional ends about it. It does mean that if we get to a stage uh, after the EU Council summit, which is on the penultimate weekend before the day we leave, um, that Boris Johnson, if he doesn't have a deal or doesn't have a majority of a no deal, will have to call for an extension. So in effect, no deal, if this thing passes tonight, is no longer the legal default until the end of the next extension. However, and Nigel Farage is going to continue pressuring uh, the Conservative Party um, and most in the country, but no deal is the only option available. Uh, the head of the Conservative Party now in Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are now backing no deal to save, well not save, but to keep their political careers ongoing. So even when MPs take it off the table tonight, I honestly, um, it doesn't make it more likely, but it certainly doesn't reduce the likelihood of it because it's not like there's an alternative plan on the table. Because at the minute, the plan that those who are going to take on the table is are certain, well, maybe now independent Conservative people, they would say, oh, yeah, we've got another deal on the table. Not going to happen. The May deal is dead. It probably shouldn't be. It probably is the compromise that people should have been looking for with a bit of yeah. tweaking. But that is dead. Uh, you've got the Remain party saying revoke or second referendum. There's no majority in Parliament for that. Not yet, anyway. It could take a while. That's a while we don't have. And the Labour Party is leaning towards that, but is still sitting on the fence for a general. In a general, the right will campaign on no deal. So, 
yes, the legislation will pass, I think it'll pass tonight, to take it off the table. However, that certainly does not mean it's gone. And to be honest, if you force me to make a prediction, which I feel very, very unconfident in doing so, I think that is where we'll end up. I honestly think it might not take a general election, and it might not take a referendum, but I think I can't see how anything else gets a majority. And No Deal won't get a majority, but I think No Deal will be the end-up coalition resulting. I don't think the Tories will get a majority, but I think it will get enough of a vote that they can sort of force it through. I mean, is it not slightly harsh, though, to kind of accuse Boris Johnson of uh, actively desiring a no-deal Brexit? I mean, he doesn't seem to, certainly in recent speeches, it doesn't necessarily seem to indicate that he actively hopes for a no-deal. It's more him saying that we can't take no-deal off the table because that removes our negotiating position. He's been saying, I do want to negotiate. You know, I mean, him and Dominic Cummins have been saying that they want to remove the backstop completely, which is dangerous, but he has been saying, I do want to negotiate and get a deal, but we can't take no deal off the table because then that removes our negotiation. Because if we say to the EU, well, we're going to leave with no deal, that allows us a little bit of breathing room. He's effectively saying to the EU, I'll, <laughs> hey, look, this is our country, we'll throw it off the cliff unless you give us a deal. Now, that is not a good negotiating strategy. Uh, well, I understand that you are more likely to negotiate if he is serious about no deal. That doesn't mean they're going to. And it's the classic British misunderstanding of the EU position. They have given huge concessions. The yeah. backstop was a UK request that the EU conceded on. And they are not going to take away to sacrifice the integrity of their single market and throw a member state on the bus because Boris Johnson says he'll plunge our country into economic problems. Um, he says he wants to renegotiate. His negotiating team is now a quarter the size of the Prime Minister's. The negotiations finished 11 months ago. There will be no more negotiations. He is using it as cover to try and keep Tory MPs on his side for now. It worked with Hugh Merriman. It didn't work with many more. And I I try to give politicians the benefit of the doubt most of the time. This is one area where I cannot. There is consistent misunderstanding of the Brussels position on this. There will be no renegotiation unless he can find a workable alternative to the backstop, which he cannot because it simply doesn't exist. Yeah, we don't have the technology. They talked about kind of uh, using technology to monitor this border. But you're right, that technology doesn't exist at this point. So we're kind of stuck with with the backstop. And I think that the kind of misunderstanding is born out of this egotistical attitude that a lot of particularly English people seem to have about the place in the world. Um, It's very sort of, you know, people will listen to me because of... (laughs) We had an empire once and all that. It's it's very sort of... I just find it so arrogant because we are a backwater of the EU. We might have the sixth largest economy in the world, but in the grand scheme of things, we are this tiny little backwater who don't mean anything. Yes, and we're threatening. We're not a superpower And that's anymore. what No Deal is. We're saying to the EU, hey, we're going to shoot ourselves in the head unless you shoot us in the foot first. It's, it makes no sense whatsoever. And it was, it was the same with Cameron's renegotiation in 2015-16. He got huge concessions from the point of view of the EU. And he went back and 
Parliament and the British people said, what's that? It's nothing. We demand more. And that's not how it works. We cannot expect other countries to throw themselves under the bus and sacrifice their principles because we demand it. We do not have that authority, especially when it was us that voted to leave, not the EU that's demanding to kick us out. Now, when no deal happens, I think the EU does deserve some of the share of the blame, but not nearly as much as the arrogance of the UK government in demanding to renegotiate something but they, when they simply don't understand their opposition partners. It's pathetic, it really is. I completely agree. Well, Sam, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Well, we'll hope to have you on again uh, in the next few weeks. I'm sure that it's going to get really interesting Certainly as time enough. goes on. Cross the benches, Cross the benches I was so, so glad yesterday with the news that HS2 is looking at further delays, ladies and gents. I cannot tell you how kind of emotional I feel about, about this issue. It really gets my back up. Um, for those who didn't see the story, Grant Shapps announced yesterday that HS2 was looking at uh, delays of about five years, which would mean that the first phase between London and Birmingham would uh, be opened now around uh, 2031. And not only that, but they're now saying that it's going to cost about 80 plus billion. I think the, the, the high, it was between 81 and 88 billion, which, you know, only a few billion. Huh. But um, HS2, it, I was never ever on board with it. I've never understood why people have backed it. The main kind of inspiration for HS2, the reason why people want HS2 to happen is to do with this idea of the northern powerhouse and, you know, increasing ties between London and the north to make it so much easier to bring industry up north. But that's not true because all you're doing by making it easier to get to London, well, if you're doing that, you're making it easier to get to London, you're expanding the London commuter belt. Because the industries in London, why would they move? Just because you've built infrastructure up north to get make it easy to get up north, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are gonna follow. People go to industry. Industry does not go to the people. And just because you've built better rail links, it does not mean that the industry is going to move up. It doesn't make any sense. And let's just while we're on the subject talk about the pricing so it was said in 2015 that HS2 was going to cost 56 billion now they're saying it's going to cost between 81 and 88 we'll say 81 just you know going low we'll be optimistic there are much better ways that we can spend that money than just on expanding the London commuter belt, surely. I mean, the NHS is still in crisis, last time I checked. You know, our education system needs some serious work. We'll cover that a bit in our next segment uh, with Jenny Lochran. But it, it just makes no sense to me. And then that's not even considering the issues with, uh, you know, green... Um, environmentalist issues, you know, you're building a railway, 
straight through uh, woodland, wildlife, you know, green areas. And then on top of that, you're running it at, I think, what, what's the speed? Something like 250 miles per hour, something like that? So you're going to be running trains at 250 miles per hour and you're damaging the environment doing it because you, you've got to, you know, bulldoze and all the rest of it. And yet we're talking about renewable energy and being green. It makes no sense. Why put the effort into... Uh, building more renewable forms of uh, energy production, you know, wind farms, uh, we've got a lot of wind farms off the coast now, uh, encouraging solar panel usage, things like that. Why put the effort into doing that if you're going to spend £81 billion pounds on building a railway that is going to actively damage the countryside and the environment? And then on top of that, of course, you're using things like diggers, bulldozers, things like that to actually build it. So then you've got to take into account the fact that you're using uh, diesel or petrol producing vehicles. Uh, sorry, diesel or petrol uh, chugging vehicles, which then produce more greenhouse gases, exhaust fumes, etc., etc. It really makes no sense to me. It, it just makes no sense at all. I mean, where I am now, I live in Grimsby right now, and this doesn't benefit me. I mean, when they say about, you know, in, in, increasing connectivity to the north, what they're talking about is uh, the cities, which, let's be honest, already have decent connectivity. In the grand scheme of things, I mean, so I, I, I'll, I'll kind of put it in perspective. So I live in Grimsby, which is pretty much just on the border of north-south. If you look at the, um, there's a map that I believe some students from Cambridge did once, and um, it shows like the north-south divide, and Grimsby is in the north, although some people keep claiming it's in the Midlands. Grimsby is in the north. If I want to get a train from Grimsby Station... I can either go to Lincoln or I can go to Manchester. Obviously there are stops along the way, but in terms of final destinations, there are two. If I wanted to go to London, I'd have to uh, get off at Doncaster or somewhere like that and change. It's the same even if I want to go up to Leeds. Leeds isn't that far away, it's like an hour drive. But I've got to change at Doncaster to get to Leeds. That's... HS2 is not going to benefit northern towns like Grimsby because all it does is increase connectivity from city to city. So in terms of the northern powerhouse, this, this idea of the northern powerhouse, it should be beneficial to everyone in the north, you know, collectively. Because the, I, the, the city boys who live in the north are probably, are, are for the most part okay anyway. Obviously, there's poverty and stuff, but there's more industry in cities, there's more jobs in cities because there's more people. 
in towns you don't necessarily have that. I mean, Grimsby, I, I know I keep coming back to Grimsby, but it's where I live, it's where I know the most about. Grimsby has one of the highest poverty rates in the country because there's nothing here. And you you talk about wanting to bring industry up north and help this northern powerhouse, but then you're not going to the places that really need it. Towns like Grimsby, and to an extent places like Blackpool, things like that as well. You're not doing that. You're going to cities that already have some form of in infrastructure. The likes of, say, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield. Some of their infrastructure, some of their industry... Yes, it's died down as time to run on. Excuse me, obviously with things like uh, closing of steelworks and things like that, obviously. Uh, British Steel and Tata Steel, uh, it's well documented the issues that uh, they've had in recent years. But those are, for the most part, going to be fine. Because they're cities, they, 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 they survive. But the towns and the villages, the likes of Grimsby, Blackpool, um, other towns like, say, the mining towns in Yorkshire, they aren't going to benefit from this. They aren't going to benefit from that infrastructure, from that industry that you're expecting to bring up north. HS2, it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Because it's not going to benefit th these small communities. It benefits the cities. It, it, that's all it ever has done, is benefit the cities. And that's all it will continue to do. I honestly despair. I mean, I saw a statistic um, the other day. I, I, I don't necessarily know how true it is, but I think it's, it's worth bringing to the discussion. For £1 billion, we could essentially uh, modernise the railways top to bottom, make it best in Europe. For one billion pounds, and yet we're spending potentially eighty-eight billion on one railway. We could have better connectivity everywhere across the entire country, from Lands End to John O'Groats. We could have some of the best infrastructure in the world. And yet we're spending that money on Rom Railway. It makes no sense to me. It, it, it honestly it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I seriously, seriously hope that Grant Shapps and the uh, Ministry of Transport see the light with regards to this because people don't want it. I mean. <laughs> Yes, there are some business groups who, who say, oh yeah, well, it'll benefit us. But honestly, I don't believe them. You know, the, ask the people who are having to have their houses demolished if HS2 is going to benefit them. Ask the people who ha are going to have to have their businesses demolished or are going to lose out because of HS2. 
they're not going to get benefits from it because they don't live in the city, do they? But then, has anyone ever cared about people who don't live in cities? Well, I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, there's never any talk of helping smaller communities, really. I mean, not that not that I ever really see. It's always about helping, not helping London. And one way or another, this is what HS2 is doing. Because as I said earlier on, all HS2 does is expand the London commuter belt. It makes it easier for people to get down to London to work in London. I mean, it, it halves it halves times um, getting to London. Fair enough. But that just means that you can justify getting a job in London when you live further away. Because the jobs are in London. So there is no northern powerhouse. Yes, people live here. But people aren't going to be able to work here. People are going to be working down south. In fact, what what could potentially happen is the complete dilution of any sort of northern identity that's left. Because, when you think about it, you might have people who work in London making... London wages but then they think oh well connectivity's good up north so I'll move up north and then then, you, then you've got a similar problem as to what you've got in Cornwall for those that don't know I mean there's a, there's a situation in Cornwall where there's a lot of people kind of from uh, kind of London in the home county so to speak who buy uh, second homes out in Cornwall. And again, Cornwall, massively, massively impoverished area. But because of the second homes that are kind of bought there by uh, people from London and the home counties, not only does it kind of dilute the 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 uh, Cornish identity, but it also does things like drives up prices, and I mean that's another thing that I wonder if people are really considering. You know, if if they make this infrastructure better, if they make it easier to to travel between where you are and London, then are they hoping to drive up prices? I don't know. I mean, that's something to think about. Cross the benches. And joining me at this time is SEND activist Jenny Lochran. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Hi. So, um, you're an SEND activist. Do you want to just explain a bit more about kind of? what that is uh, for those who don't know that's a quite tricky one what what is that um it is somebody i suppose that's been on a personal journey with regard to our lived experience um and it's kind of exposed me to the world of send and now um i am trying to raise awareness of the issues that's happening not lo- only locally but nationally as well um, that's where the um, charity comes in, um, but 
I'm in quite a lucky position in the fact that we're in quite a good place with regard to Joseph's specialist provision um, and now I just want to take the time to work with schools, work with families and just try and shout at the top of a rooftop that things need to change. So Joseph, your son, he's mm. got uh, SEND needs as well. Yes, he so, is autistic. Yeah, I imagine you've been on quite a battle with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I for the listeners that don't know, I, I have uh, my own SEND needs. I know people, uh, other people who have them as well. I know what a struggle it can be. Um, so just want to talk a bit more about like the kind of journey that you've been through and the struggle that you've had to put um, with. We have been on uh, this roller coaster for about 10 years. Um, it started with my oldest son, um, who I'm not going to name because he'd kill me. Okay. <laughs> He's 15 and he'd not be impressed. Um, but yeah, so he has Tourette's and OCD. Okay. Um, and with regard to him, uh, he was actually, he presented not too bad the first few years and it was actually OCD mm. traits that was most problematic for him yeah. and whilst he was happy to carry on living a pretty normal life mm. and was totally unaware of, of his issues, I was yeah. quite happy not to really go to the doctors about it until it became a problem for him. And it was only that when he hit, I suppose, year four, that his vocal tics started to be quite a problem. Okay. And he began to show deterioration within his own mental health with regard to how he viewed himself. Okay. So I thought, right, now's the time for me to step in and try yeah. to support him to through it, help. to get some help. Um, unfortunately, he was academically able. Hmm. And I know it's not unfortunate, it's fortunate that he was academically able, but that's why we couldn't receive any support with regard to getting a diagnosis or getting other support with mental health. Yeah. So when I took him to the doctor and said he's presenting with X, Y and Z, and the doctor said, what does school say? And the school says, he's fine at school. So because of that statement, he's fine at school or we don't see any problems at school, that then was a barrier for us as yeah, a family. We couldn't get any further down a pathway of any kind, I couldn't get any support, I couldn't get anybody to listen to me. So in the meantime, as far as the academy school was concerned, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't an issue for them because he was meeting his targets, mm. but for Samuel and his mental health, he came to a point where he wanted to kill himself. Mm. Um, and I can remember uh, being referred to CAMS and he was only referred to CAMS because the nurse at the time, the school nurse, was a family friend. So that was a bit of a fluke. Um, so we got that referral and even then school didn't recognise it as being a problem. Um, and he would be ticking in the toilet. He'd go to, to the toilet to tick. Yeah. Um, so... My second child, who has just only been diagnosed with autism and a learning disability, he's literally only just been diagnosed and he's okay. 11. The first experience with my first child, um, I learned from that. And I thought, yeah, I am not going down the road. I'm not going down that road again. I am going to educate myself. 
I'm going to learn the SEN Code of Conduct. I am going to hold the school to account to enforce and to ensure that my son gets the provision that he mm. needs and said that's what I've had to do. So when they said you won't get an education healthcare plan, I've not gone, oh, okay then. I've thought, well, I, no, if I think he needs an education healthcare plan because you're, you're not meeting his needs, yeah. he's not meeting his targets, I feel that he had a learning disability, I felt that he had autism, but you're saying he's fine, so let's prove it then. Yeah. So the That's... educational healthcare plan was put in, which I requested, and um, yeah, it's now an education education healthcare plan. And I think I think like your story very much shows the kind of flaw in getting diagnosis, uh, getting mm. diagnosis with uh, special education and meeting disabilities, mm. because schools they only see a very uh, the most focused version of your child. I think like mm. it's in a very focused scenario. It's only for a set amount of time. Mm. You know, you're you're only going to be exposed to a certain amount of situations in a mm. school environment where you're. <laughs> I apologise for the background noise. If you can hear that, um, you're only going to be exposed to a certain amount of scenarios where your uh, so-called issues yeah. would school manifest themselves. It's a very structured environment. Yeah. And some children are going to roll with that. And can it looks like they're coping, but what they're doing is masking and conforming. Yes. And there's a very big difference between a child looking like he's coping to a child that internally is not coping. And so what happens is that child will conform and mask and conform and mask mm. all day long until they get home. Exactly. And then the family then will have to deal with the aftermath of that child being forced to conform because there's no other alternative. You know, if those child's yeah. needs aren't being met, then that child will either take the fight or flight mode. Yeah. And for some children, it will be a massive meltdown. But for other children, it will be an internal struggle with themselves of looking like they're fine, yeah. but actually inside they're not fine. And that's certainly something that I saw with my youngest child. Um, and he would go to school, and because he's not a disruptive child, hmm. he didn't get in the way of the teacher learning and, and teaching the children. No, of course. He wasn't a chair thrower. He wasn't a child that had a big, massive meltdown. He was a pleaser. He wanted yeah. to please. So in pleasing others, that kind of was a detriment to himself. Because then he would really, 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 really struggle internally, and um, all intents purposes, wanting to be brave. But actually, when he comes home, as soon as he would come out of the school, that's when a big, big meltdown would, would yeah. come. And I would certainly say in the last year, when he got the pressure of SATs, he Joseph was never going to pass his SATs. You know, no. um, you know. Once he was diagnosed with a learning disability, obviously you've got that diagnosis then. Yeah, and, that, and that indicates um, his struggles in black and white. Then, at the same time, it was in the same year of SATs. So everything, all the work that I wanted to do was to avoid year six. I wanted to get it all yeah. out of the way before SATs came. It didn't work. It didn't turn out like that because I wasn't listened to. Um, However, I must say, in year six, he did have 
a very good teacher. Okay, that's good. So despite all of the previous years, there was a lot of staff changes, a lot of different heads in the school. His last year was actually the best year because of the teacher, because of that one person, her approach, her willing to work with me. You know, our, we worked in partnership, completely different experience to the last few years within that school that I had with my other child and the years previous connections with Joseph. And I must say, that made all the difference. If I'm going to approach a teacher and say, I have a concern, and they're not going to listen to me, then that is a massive barrier. So yeah, for a teacher just to say, oh, I've not heard of that before. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna look at that online. Just having that approach means an awful lot with regards to what I'm gonna think about that teacher because I then think, well, that teacher is taking on board what I'm saying. She's not ignoring me. She's not thinking I'm neurotic. She is working with me. And just to go online and do a little bit of research, that's not cost anything out of the teacher's budget or the academy's budget. No. That is just her, that's just good practice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it's no secret that teachers make all the difference mm. um, in these scenarios. I mean, I can speak from personal experience that, I mean, I've had teachers that have basically been completely unaware of what's gone on and have as a result not really made much of an effort to provide the provisions that you know i need mm. um but then i've had others who have been absolutely perfect and then that is the difference because there's certain things that the schools can do they call them reasonable adjustments yes might be something really tiny but can make a massive difference to that child and then you can get other teachers that will go over and above definitely you know that you know the effort is really meaningful and will make a massive difference to that child and i think there's too many inconsistencies with regard yeah. to teachers that children go through particularly with you know mainstream education there's too many inconsistencies so one year might be a really good year and you might find that child has mm. um, an improvement with regard to their mental health and therefore progression within their own potential but then they might go on to the next teacher the following year and have yeah. a completely different approach mental health mental health will then deteriorate and then obviously academically and I think it's safe to say that the progression wouldn't be as good as the year before. So inconsistency is massive. As and, well. it, and it's almost like there's no real um, perfect scenario. Mm. So, I mean, primary school, most uh, kids have, say, one teacher for the entire year. Mm. So it's very much either you've got a teacher that understands or a teacher who is clueless. Mm. But then you go to secondary school, and that's not much better because secondary school loses that structure. Mm. Um, primary schools, you know, you're with one teacher the entire time, you're in one room. Mm. Secondary school, you're constantly changing. So, mm. And the some... methods of teachers are different. Oh, definitely. As definitely. well. Definitely. I mean, I um, know people, say for example, uh, who also have autism and ended up actually having to drop out of secondary school. Mm because they couldn't cope with the um, kind of lack of structure, you know, having it constantly change rooms and... And also, yeah, definitely, I mean, the stopping and the starting in different rooms, and this is something, this is my argument that I tried to make to my local authority, 
with regards to Joseph not being able to cope in mainstream. And there's no way that Joseph would have been able to navigate himself through all the different classrooms, the stopping and the starting, yeah. through all the different sessions. So when a child leaves a classroom, there might be 10 minutes where they're preparing to yeah. finish. Then they're preparing to leave the classroom. Then they're preparing to navigate around the school to get into the classroom. It's those different transitions mm. that, you know, mainstream children, that very typical mainstream children, will just think nothing of. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. But for an autistic child, even those little gestures are massive. And then you've got to adapt to that different teacher. Yeah. That teacher then has a different teaching style. So all those little things, make it's just it's just huge for the Definitely. for those children and it's not just people with autism as well i mean mm. you look at say someone with uh, dyslexia or dyspraxia yeah. um if you're in year seven you don't know the school and you're but having to basically say on signs or sense mm. of direction or whatever mm. a dyspraxic child may struggle with a series of directions i know mm. i did uh, i've got dyspraxia so when i was young i struggled with uh, being given a list of directions. Mm. So a dyspraxic child going into year seven might struggle with that. A dyslexic child might struggle to read signs po pointing them mm. somewhere. There, there's no support for that, and it's so basic. Mm. It's so so basic. Mm. I mean, it's not. Co it's not like every man and his dog has something like this. Mm. So it's not a lot of effort to say have a TA. Just you know going round with that child for the first mm. few days, say you mm. start in secondary school and say, mm. this is the library, this is this classroom. Mm. It's so, so simple. And this is something I think that, that teaching staff need to be told. Definitely. And when you do your, I mean, I used to be a, a TA and I was very fortunate to work with a really supportive team and we worked in a really small school as well. So it's really easy to communicate to each other. We didn't rely on seeing an email and spotting yeah. an email. Like when you're in a mainstream academy, communication, most of the communication is done through by email. I was fortunate to live in a really small school and quite a small community, and so communication was just there. Um, when I did my training, there wasn't anything on SEM. Yeah. Anything. And it was only because of my own lived experience that I knew yeah. about SEN because it was my life. Um, and I've had to, to fight and research and learn everything that I could possibly do to ensure my children get what they need. Um, but if you are on a course and you want to go into the teaching profession, and you're going to be working with SEN, that, that's, that's yeah. definite. And as a TA, you're more likely, so my role was a TA, you're more likely to be not solely responsible because the teacher's solely responsible, but mm. you will be a massive part in that child's life as a TA. You will be supporting that child, you know, predominantly um, all day. But there's no training in order for them to do that. So I worked for a local authority school and I didn't receive, my role was to support the teacher and yeah. to support the children in the classroom and also to to do whatever the teacher needed me to do so if we had a child and we observed in the first term that you know those that needs to be a little bit more support 
um, but there was no funding that came attached to the child. Um, I didn't get any training for that. And I, and I did actually ask my local authority yeah. and I did say, you know, is there any training that I can access? Because, you know, as a TA, my job is to support where the need is. And the answer was no. So how, how, let's kind of get our head around that. How important TAs are in order for all children to make progress alongside with the, 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 the teacher but there's no, so your job is to support children with SEM, yeah. but we're not going to give you any training. So that's like saying to a teacher, right, go and, go and teach a class, but we're not going to be able to give you any training. How, yeah. how, do, how can that possibly work out? So then when you're trying to support parents and you're trying to give them advice around what pathways are available, how can you do that if you don't know what pathways are available? Now, I was quite fortunate because, you know, I'd... I've been on those pathways with my children. Yeah, of course. You know, over a ten-year period, and it's in my interest to, to to find out because I know how hard it is. If you've got a parent for the first time who's in this send community and they've no idea how to get on pathways, they've no idea how referrals work. Where are they getting their information from? Because the teachers might not know. Yeah. You know, they, they, they might not know about all the pathways available and things do change quite a lot in the local authority. You need to keep yourself up to date. So where are those parents getting their information from? And there was a lot of misinformation as well. Definitely. Um, so from a TA's perspective, I wanted to access training, but there was no funding available for training at all. And of course, that, that that brings about other issues as well. I mean, if someone's trained as a TA and they say never had any experience mm. with uh, someone who has, say, autism, mm. they may not know kind of the best tactics to say deal with uh, an autistic child mm. who's maybe having a meltdown or is struggling or something like mm. that. Mm. It's just going to da- to potentially damage that child mm. further. It's, it's mental health, isn't it? An early yeah. intervention, I cannot um, advocate early intervention enough. And because of the funding crisis that we find ourselves in, the government um, are wanting, although you know there was definitely talk about getting rid of nurseries, yeah. um, getting rid of early years. I can't get my head around that. I can't get my head around why they think that would be a positive move when we look at in, uh, early intervention and we're looking at child development and we're looking at trying to be an inclusive society and we're looking at mental health but let's not invest in early years yeah it's ridiculous to me it's ridiculous i mean you wait for politicians talk till the cows come home about our children of the future it's one of those sort of political mottos buzzwords mm. and yet they don't want to put the effort in yeah. to help and, young people. And I feel like these, these buzzwords are a little bit like um, a tick box. Yeah. Um, like There's a really good word that the local authority like to use. It's called co-production. Okay. Um, co-production to me is working with lots of different people um, in the community of SEND. Not only, so you've got your professionals, You've got your children, you've got your child's voice, yeah. your person's voice, you've got your parents. You've got different agencies that might work within the com- uh, com- uh, c- 
community. So that could be that could be CAMS or Young Minds Matter. That could be paediatricians. That could be health visitors. That could be nurseries. That could be primary schools. That could be secondary school. LAs, CCG. That to me is co-production. So you're getting everybody's input on how um, services are affecting them as people and as practitioners. So that's meaningful co-production. So you have a collective voice there. Um, and I don't think we're very good at doing that. I think, um, you know, I've, I've, I've sat on a couple of meetings and it's been to do with looking at something that's called the access pathway. And the access pathway in this area is um, a type of pathway that your child can get referred onto with regard to looking at what else can, what else is out there with regards to support. So do we need a diagnosis? Are we looking at universal services? Are we looking at something more? Um, and I sat at a meeting, this was a few weeks ago, and we were looking at, basically it wasn't working, they bought okay. out too early, um, the people that were um, working on the access pathway didn't know enough information about it themselves, so they tried to roll it out too early, and the local authority admitted that, and they said we have rolled it out too early, um, but they failed on the co-production. And so parents get annoyed at that, because then, they'd see it as a tick box exercise because they haven't co-produced with anybody. No. And so they had all these people sat around the table, but the one, the one um, organisation that hadn't invited was schools. <laughs> and there was, the schools was, and I said, you're missing a trick. You know, 80% of the information that takes place before that referral is made to um, FAP, they call it Family um, Access uh, Point, Family first access point, yeah. and they look at the information, and then they send it to the access pathway. It's from schools, but they've not thought to invite anybody from schools about what are the problems, what are you saying, what are you seeing from a school's point of view, what is making your job harder from a school's point of view, what's your barrier, what is making it difficult for you to fill that form in, um, yeah. and if the if the information isn't strong enough on that referral form, it'll get kicked out. But the need, the need of the child is still there. It's just not being recorded in the right way. Yeah. So translation is being lost in the paperwork because the child is, is never met. You know, some, some uh, referral processes, it's, they're just basing it on paperwork. They're, those professionals never get to see that child, never meet that child. No. So the information in the paperwork is absolutely crucial. And a lot of that information is from schools. And so the argument I try to make is, to me, too much responsibility is put onto what do schools think. So in the past, I've gone to the doctor and said, I feel there's issues with regard to my child, I'm not happy. And the doctor has said, right, what does school think? So you go to the school, the school says, well, he's fine in school, okay. Schools are not SEN specialists. They're educators. They're not trained to spot things. They are trained to educate. Now, if you're a teacher and you've got 30 other children in your class, you might be unqualified. You might have been in the system for a while. Oh. You're not going to spot everything. You're not. You're going to miss things. If you aren't a specialist on autism, for example, or a learning disability, for example, 
or, or any any kind of specific, because I don't want to make this all about no, autism, but no, any kind of generic um, dis disability, you are not going to be able to say to that parent, well, I actually think that this, 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 and this. You're looking at it from a totally different perspective because that that teacher's job is to make sure that that child is on track with regard to uh, academic, yeah, academic achievement. Yeah. You know, the data that, that, that teachers now um, have to look at and are involved in, that's what it's about. It's about tracking data, st statistics. Um, it's not about emotional, social, mental health. No. It's, it's not. Um, and so too much responsibility is put on what do schools think. And if we're going to put that responsibility on schools, then give them the tools then. Definitely. Give definitely, them the tools. Definitely. And I, I, it kind of brings up to another point in terms of uh, academies, the advent of oh, academies. Yeah. It makes me wonder about kind of ulterior motives. Mm. Because if you're going to an academy um, and asking if they... Um, think a child has got SEND needs that kind of might kind of not necessarily lie but maybe twist the truth because they potentially say don't want to fund the extra positions for that child mm. this, is the issue, this is the issue with academies essentially being private businesses yeah. and it's also back to your point about um, schools not being invited to the meetings it makes it difficult for local authorities because with them being private businesses, they are not bound to attend in the same way that a school run by local authority is. And this is what I keep saying in the fact that as long as, um, I mean, I, I must say over the last few weeks, our local authority, have, 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 I think they've tried, they've tried, yeah. but um, as long as academies are academies, and they are, as you say, are private businesses, essentially, and local authorities are local authorities, things are not going to change. No. Because they don't, they're not very good at communicating with each other. They're not very good at co-producting with each other because at the end of the day, there's no accountability. So, you know, when a SEND child is in a mainstream academy and they are struggling, and they haven't got an education healthcare plan, for example, so there's no extra funding yeah. attached to that child. Um, and the child's needs are not being met, and though therefore it might be that child is not accessing um, the academy, the mainstream academy, and not being homeschooled, because I know that's a massive problem at the moment, then what? Where is the accountability? Where is the accountability for that school? That school can say, well, I'm sorry, but we can't meet need. Goodbye. Yeah. Home school. There's, there's, there's no way for that parent to go. There's, there's no next steps. There's, there are the laws in place. So, you know, there's the, the Children and Families Act, um, the Children and Families Act of 2014. You know, there's all these different laws that come into place. But actually, there isn't the money to uphold them. That's the problem. So yeah. we've got the laws to ensure that the child's needs are being met, but there isn't the money to back the laws up. That's the problem. And that's why there isn't any accountability in academies. Because academies are essentially their own businesses. Um, and it's, and it's 
so frustrating. I think that's a great note to end it on, actually. Um, thank you for your time, Jenny. Um, could you just tell us a little bit quickly about um, your charity action for Sense? So I'm, I'm desperately trying to um, set up a charity called Action for Send. Um, I'm wanting very much to work um, with schools. I'm very much about working with people I'm not against. Um, I think progression is really, really good. Um, I'd like to do some workshops um, and bring them into schools and give parents the opportunity to speak to teaching staff and say, you know, this is what it's like for me living with the same child and this is how it impacts my child this is how it impacts us as a family and looking at the dynamics of that and I think that's really important because I don't think we are given the opportunity and certainly practitioners as well practitioners and parents don't really have the opportunity to really communicate with each other um, and especially with regard to the barriers that are there for practitioners as well you know I don't want to come across that I'm against schools I'm no. not um, I think there's loads of uh, barriers that um, are, are put in place for practitioners as well. But it's about sitting in a room and talking to each other and seeing it from the parents' perspective with regard to how it actually affects them with regard to their mental health and what it's like living with a same child. And I think that would be quite therapeutic for some families in order to be able to do that. I'd also, um, as a charity, want to go into schools and talk to mainstream children about what they think disability looks like. You know, because disability is not really spoken about in the national curriculum. We don't talk about disability. We don't talk about additional needs. We don't talk about that it's good to be different. You know, and actually what is normal? You know, yeah. and as a society, we're told we're inclusive, but what does it actually mean to be inclusive? Because we don't talk, national curriculum, we don't talk about it. Yet, we teach children, we try and teach children to be kind. And as adults, we, you know, uh, I read um, a document, a policy, a school policy oh. the other day, and it had the word inclusive. But just because you write a word in a sentence that says inclusive doesn't mean you're an inclusive school. It just no. means you ticked a box. It comes back to the buzzwords um, discussion earlier on, doesn't it, really? It does. And so I want to talk about how can we really start to have meaningful conversations about disability within schools? Because mainstream children need to know that it's okay to be different. And they need to sometimes to be taught to be kind by yeah. educating them. Um, so that's something that I that I want to do as well. So there's lots of things I want to do um, within the charity. Um, we're still very much in the early stages. Um, we're looking for a secretary. We need to register. I'm looking for seed funding. Um, I think there's there's definitely a need, and it's something that I am going to do because at the moment, yes, I have. Um, the provision that my child needs now. There's certainly going to be bumps in the road for the, for the rest of his life. But there's loads of families out there that are still fighting. Um, and I want to try and do something to win. Not to improve, but I just feel like it's a need in me. And like, I can't help myself. That's fair enough. <laughs> is, there, is there any way that any listeners can get in touch with you uh, if um, they want to get involved? Or? There is. Um, if listeners want to contact me, they can contact me via Facebook. I don't know if that's something okay. that, that um, people feel comfortable to do. You can look me up, um, Jenny Lochran. Lochran is spelled L-O-U-G-H-R-A-N. Um, I'm certainly happy to leave my email as well. Um, I am just in the middle... Oh, actually, you can go on the website. I've got a website. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, at the moment, the website is called sendadvisor.co.uk. Okay. Um, I am looking to change that name to Action for Send, and I am in the middle of making loads of changes to the website. Um, the website, you can go on there, you can share your experiences on there. It's for practitioners as well to share their experiences. It's all confidential. Um, we're looking at barriers to find solutions. It's an evidence building site as well, so it's about looking at the barriers, looking at the solutions. So when Ofsted comes to town, you can Ofsted can get a really good yeah. collective view. Gosh. That is called sendadvisor.co.uk. You can go on there. There is an email. Um, there's in, 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 there's a contact page that you can contact me on there. But please bear with because it is being changed, and there's lots of things that is going to be changed on that website as well. Of course. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Excellent, thank you. That was Jenny Luffran there talking, uh, really quite an emotional uh, conversation, I think, about uh, SEND needs, S-E-N-D needs, um, however you want to say it. Uh, I think that Jenny's charity idea is absolutely brilliant. I think it's exactly what people need. And, you know, if even if you're just interested in uh, S-E-N-D needs, seriously get in touch with Jenny because she's absolutely lovely she's really really motivated and um, you know the more the merrier with this uh, I know she's looking for a secretary at the minute so anyone who's really interested in getting involved just get in touch with her you know find her on Facebook find a website she gave a link there so seriously please do uh, get in touch with her if you're interested The bench, the bench, the bench. Well, that is it for today's podcast. I really do hope that you've enjoyed it. Join us on Friday when we'll be taking another look at the news and we'll also be discussing the success of devolution with Nicholas Sturgeon, leader of the SNP, recently really cracking down and really pushing for a general election. It's all getting interesting. So we'll see you Friday.